It's great to be back here for another Tuesday night. Uh, thankfully, the air conditioning is back on, which is nice. Woo. Y'all, it's fall, but it's not fall yet. So, <laughs> uh, I want to say this. Like we said, it's still time to register for fall conference. Uh, if you are a first year, let me know, and we'll take $30 off the normal cost. If you're not a first year, regardless of what year you are, we'll take $20 off the cost. Um, let us know. We want you to go. We want, we want to hang out with you this weekend. It's, it's really fun. Also, I want to say uh, we're going to Yopo after this. So if you like Yopo and you have time for Yopo, there's always time for Yopo. Just like there's always room for Yopo. Uh, <laughs> we're heading to Yopo after this. Uh, so put that on your social calendar. Also, you may not have noticed this, but we have what's called a book table over here. And there's some random books on there, some things to help figure out, like, what has God done in the Bible? Um, what does it mean to struggle with depression or lust and various things? One of the books that's out there, I just wanted to plug this, is uh, called Taking God at His Word. It's by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. It's very good. It's short, as you can see, but it's a, a good basic primer on what does it mean to believe the Bible? Um, what does it mean that the Bible is God's Word? How do we trust that? Uh, you can read it. In a few hours, I think I read it in like three or four hours earlier this summer. It was great. It was really helpful. It'll be on the table. If you want to check it out, uh, check it out. Just write your name like any other book and check it out and bring it back when you get done. It's great. I also want to say that uh, my wife Katie's here. (laughs) She's healthy. She's doing well. Emery is at home with Katie's aunt, so thank God for family in town, because uh, you, you don't want to hear Emory cry through my sermon, so there you go. Uh, some people asked me earlier tonight, what are new experiences you've had in fatherhood? And there's been some new ones. I think the one that stuck out the most to me, though, has been to hold your infant child in your hand and to just be like, this is so sweet, it is so wonderful, she's looking up at you, she's like kind of grasping a little bit and maybe like making smiles at you and then to feel in your hand just it feels like gravel is falling out of her pants <laughs> as she poops <laughs> that's a new experience i never had it before i never had someone poop in my hand <laughs> fatherhood's wonderful though <laughs> it's great being a pe- uh oh dad and a parent um so uh Katie and I, you may not know this, but Katie and I, before we moved to Chapel Hill, we lived in St. Louis for the last five years, and St. Louis is, it's a really cool, fun, Midwestern town. There's a lot of great things going on about it. It's got lots of great music, it's got uh, beautiful architecture, great food, Uh, but one of the things that's kind of quirky about this kind of Midwestern town, you can talk to Eric about it because he's from there, is they have uh, this really weird pizza that the whole city is just crazy about called Emo's. And we hated it. I mean, the first time that we ever sat down and ate this stuff, it's just like, ugh, please no more. Like, it's, it basically what it is, it's a cracker with ricotta cheese on it and like a little bit of marinara. And it's just so gross. Um, and Eric and I have had many debates back and forth about is, is this good pizza or not? And what's central to like good pizza? Um, there was another place in, in St. Louis called the Blackthorn, which is where we, I really like to go with my friends. And it was a total dive bar. I mean, you would go in there, and it had been open for like 35 years, and the guy didn't care if you ordered or not. Like, the walls were scratched up with graffiti. Uh, you would order, and like two and a half hours later, your pizza would finally come out. <laughs> and it was this huge, thick crust, and 
like this really spicy marinara sauce, but the thing about it was the cheese was so thick, it was like concrete in your stomach for like two days. And it would just, you're, you'd eat more than two pieces and you thought you were going to die. Like, but it was so good, y'all. <laughs> it was so good. Go if you ever get a chance, for real, go. Um, I talk about pizza, I talk about debating this stuff with Eric, because uh, I love him and I love pizza, and I'll talk all day about food. Uh, but I also want to talk about what, what are central things? What is central to, to pizza? Moving on beyond that, even in St. Louis, what is central to other big aspects of being a person? I mean, there's been a lot of controversy in St. Louis recently about Ferguson and about all the racial tension there. What does it mean to do justice? Um, you, can think, you can think a lot about what does it mean here to be a student? What does it mean to be a Christian? Paul is going to talk tonight about an argument that he has with Peter. And it's a short three or four verses, but it's a big deal. Because Paul and Peter are just having this kind of go at it over what is central. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus practically every day? In this passage we're about to read, Paul is telling us about what happened as he meets some people in the early church. And there's this controversy going on between people who want to make converts follow the Old Testament purity laws and those that don't, who say that Jesus fulfilled those laws, we don't have to follow them anymore. And Paul is very open about the fact that he and Peter, this big deal apostle, have a very public argument about what's fundamental, what's central to Christianity. What does it look like to live as a Christian? And that's a big deal for us too, right? Very practically, Paul is going to say that for us tonight, we can talk about freedom from legalism. Freedom from having to live by the law and having to justify ourselves by God. So tonight I want to talk about two things, really briefly. The danger of legalism and then freedom in Christ. The danger of legalism and the freedom in Christ. So let's read Galatians 2, 11 through 14, and we'll get started here. This is Paul, and when he says Cephas, he means Peter. Peter kind of went by a couple of names, depending on what language you're talking about him in. So this is Paul writing about Peter. He says... But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, again that's Peter, before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray and ask God's help in this. Father, as always, when we approach your word, we need your help. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us in your word. Sometimes it's things that are very blunt and easy to understand. Sometimes it's things that are more difficult. But Lord, I pray that regardless of how we come tonight or where we come or what we receive, that you would receive it with us. You'd make us able to understand and able to hear and able to see the beauty and the power and the presence of your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So what's going on here? Why is Paul so mad at Peter? I'll say this. He's mad because... 
He knows that Peter is not living according to God's grace, and he's actually encouraging people not to live in that way either. Peter is acting hypocritically. Look at what Paul says to him. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, if you're free from the law and you don't live by the law, how can you approach people who were never under the law and make them live that way? Paul is mad because Peter is being a legalist. He's creating new laws for people who God has set free from the law. Do you see the problem here? That Peter is binding people's conscience. And even more than that, he's putting himself in the place of God. Taking on his authority in their lives to say what is and isn't right, what you do and don't need to do to live in the community of the saints. Before we go on, let's define legalism. That generally legalism is when you approach God in a way that you says you want to be justified by what you do rather than what he's done for you. That you would want to be justified by what you do rather than what God has done for you. And really legalism is a distortion of God's grace that leads to hypocrisy. So how is Peter being hypocritical here? Peter is being hypocritical because he's so afraid of the people around him. For a legalist, people and what people think and what people say and how people approach you, those are big. And God is small. And what God says about you, what God thinks about you, what God has done for you, He's small. The true law of the legalist is they must live and please something other than God. And they receive something and give something out other than what He's given to them. And that may be the people in their life. Or that may be, for some of us, that kind of distant, mean, demanding picture of God that you had, that you grew up with, and you know could never be pleased with you. But in trying to do that, we put up all kinds of rules and all kinds of regulations. They don't set us free, but actually make us more bound. For Peter, that's forcing Gentiles to live according to the Old Testament purity laws. What might that look like for us, though? What if you're someone who says, you know, I take sin pretty seriously. And when I confess my sins, you know, I'm going to bow my head and say, you know, Lord, forgive my pride. Or forgive me for my carelessness. But when you ask for forgiveness, you actually go into specifics with God. Not just forgive me for my pride, kind of that out there thing. Or when, but forgive me when I sat down with this relative group of strangers the other day at lunch. And all I did was kind of list out the things that I was doing in school, or all the really cool places that I traveled. And I was trying to sell them on how awesome I was. Now, is God actually free when you confess sin to deal with all the sin in your life? Or, is, or do you confess sin so that you can kind of show Him that you're handling a lot of stuff, and He kind of knows that you're handling these things, and He's over there, but really it's on you? <coughs> So really, it's Jesus and my law-keeping that equals my right standing with God. Legalism usually mixes God's free grace with a person's terms for receiving grace. The Galatians are struggling because they think that Christ's work is sufficient to entitle them to some of the benefits of his life, but they need to add to his perfect obedience some of their own imperfect obedience. But the truth of the gospel is that Jesus plus nothing is everything. 
You don't add anything to that because all of our obedience is done imperfectly. What we receive from Jesus is His perfect obedience. I think this would be hard also for some of us who want to just be like nice people. That I can be someone who cares about genuine, honest relationships and be nice with people, but there's someone in my life who I just can't stand. You know, maybe like they breathe through their mouth, uh, their shoes squeak, and they don't know how much you can't stand them, but you know that they rub you the wrong way, and you know, you'll go out of your way to like avoid them on campus, not to have to talk to them in conversation, kind of dodge them and get out of their way. And you do that not because of, like the thing that they're doing is so overwhelming but because for you to actually sit down and have this conversation with them, even as maybe needful as it would be, would kind of shatter that image of you of being just a very nice person. But you say you value genuineness and honesty. You see that disconnect? You cannot be honest or genuine because the deeper laws that you live by is that I will not have to confront people, that I will always be this nice guy or this nice woman, that Jesus plus me keeping the peace equals my right standing with God, and my right standing in front of other people. And oftentimes, I think we can struggle more with kind of an evangelical head and a legalistic heart. By that I mean that we can know in our minds, all right, I know that I'm saved by faith in Jesus and His work for me, but unless I do certain things, or unless I act in a certain way, I don't feel like I'm saved. You ever feel that way? That might mean I need to go and have a certain experience in worship. That might, might mean I need to have uh, not committed a certain big sin in my life. But it always comes down to Jesus plus that thing that I do, or Jesus plus that thing that I don't do, that equals my right standing with God, with other people, with myself. You know, I really confronted this, or don't know if I confronted it, but I ran headlong into it in my own life when I was at Auburn a few years ago working for RUF. And I was working there. I just kind of started on the job. And I was talking with this guy who was kind of in kind of Auburn circles on his way to kind of being kind of big man on campus. And I was talking to him, and I just wanted to kind of get to know somewhat what was going on with students in general at Auburn. And I asked him one day while we were talking, I was like, what do you think is the biggest problem facing people here? You know, it's kind of a general kind of thing. And his response was, he just kind of put his hands in his belt buckle and like looked off to the distance. And I knew as soon as he started to talk, I was like, I'm not going to like this. Uh, <laughs> but he said, you know, all those people out there who just come here to drink and to hook up, with one another, that's the biggest problem for us students here at Auburn. And, like, my disgust over that was not visible because I want to be the nice guy. Uh, <laughs> but I was just so turned off by that, uh, over his legalism, over, like, oh, like, it's all about those people over there. Don't you see anything in your own heart? But as I thought about it later, I realized, like, I'm being a legalist towards the legalist. Right? Like, my legalism is to say that if you're a legalist, you're out. And that's so hypocritical of me. <laughs> there is no sense of mercy for God uh, on his part 
There's no sense of, man, like, maybe you need to work through this judgmentalism. Don't you see that Jesus is taking your judgment for you? It was all just like, ugh, you grossed me out. And I literally, I don't think I ever talked to him again. <laughs> um, I just kind of blew him off. That's my experience with my own legalism. Um, I hope that I would do better now. Um, I hope that I've kind of dealt with my own heart in a way that would help me actually have that conversation with somebody. But that's my experience with it. What's yours? Is it about those people out there? Is it about the kind of image that you want to show to the people around you? Is it that thing that you're kind of working towards for God so that he would finally accept you or be happy with you? What's that thing where it's Jesus plus for you? And this moves me on to my second point. So if that's the danger of legalism, what's the freedom that we have in Christ? What's the freedom we have in Christ? You know, the problem that Paul is putting his finger on right here is that Peter is trying to validate himself in front of these people, which has led him to be a hypocrite, right? Deeper than that, though, what's the problem? What's the problem below the hypocrisy? What's the sin beneath the sin? That Peter has forgotten what his validation is in. He's forgotten what his significance is in. He's forgotten what the Bible calls his righteousness. Peter is driven by what other people think about him because he's disconnected from what has truly given him true validation and true righteousness, which is Jesus. And a lot of times we can try to validate ourselves when we don't either have God's validation already or when we don't feel like we're in touch with it. And we can work to have our outsides look amazing, right? That externally we can work to have our GPA on top we can work to look how athletic we are, or how athletic we try to look. Um, how hard we party. That you know, if you could be the guy who could take twenty shots in a row and stand up, like man, he would finally respect you. Or the appearance of even being just a good moral person. But on the inside, that we can look like depressed. We can feel a ton of anger towards people, which we never let out. We can feel like we're around people all the time, but we have this feeling that none of them really know us. None of them know the real you. You know, hypocrisy and legalism exist when there's a disconnect between my outsides and my insides. Between what I say validates me and that thing that really does validate me. But the truth of the gospel is that Jesus' death in your place for your sins is what validates you before God. And that's the thing that validates you before yourself and before other people. And our outside is not our righteousness. But our righteousness is what God has placed inside of us through faith in Jesus. His love, His presence, His spirit, His redemption. And even when we don't feel those things, they're true of us. Think about this. What happens when God declares someone righteous? When He actually validates that person? What happens is that God has stood before you and He has your sins over here and He has Jesus' righteousness right here. He takes all of your sins, your thoughts, your works, your intentions, the motivations of your heart, and He puts those over here with Jesus. And He takes Jesus' right standing with Him. All of Jesus' good work for people. All of His good work for God. All of His good thoughts. All of His good intentions. And He puts that on you. 
And Jesus is punished for those sins. And you are set free, and God looks at you as though you were Jesus himself. With all of his right thoughts. With all of his right standing. And for you, there is now no more condemnation. There is no punishment that could come from other people in terms of your self-worth, from God, from yourself. Think about this. God would be unjust. He would be unjust to punish you for your sins if your faith is in Jesus. Because those sins have already been punished. If your faith is in Jesus' work and not your own, then that is true for you. Regardless of whether you feel it or not. Because your right standing with Him is not based on what you can or cannot do, or you can or cannot feel, but on who God is and what He has done for you. So you can have tough conversations with people. And you don't have to be the nice person. You can be the honest person who really lets people know where they stand. Not in a mean way or cruel way, but in an honest, direct way. Because you don't have to validate yourself in front of that person. Or you can take a break from working out or from running and sit on your couch and eat those sweet, sweet Doritos, that cool ranch flavor, and just rest and watch football one Saturday afternoon. You can do that. Because your body is not your validation. And what other people say about your body is not your validation or your right standing. Or think about this. You can go out into the world and you can do incredible things with all the gifts you have, with all the skills that you have, with all the hard work you have, and you cannot be an arrogant jerk about it because your validation is not in your work. So you can do great things in the world and you can do great things for God and you don't have to worry about becoming this puffed up, conceited jerk. You don't have to worry about becoming arrogant. Because who you are, you're right standing with yourself and with other people and with God is in Jesus and not you. And the flip side of that is that you don't have to worry that if you leave UNC, you're going to have, go and have this mediocre life that doesn't mean anything. Because your righteousness and your right standing before God and before other people is Jesus. The gospel frees us from having to work to show how great we are. And also frees us from when we actually do great work from being destroyed by that work. Because the gospel is God's work on your behalf. That Jesus plus nothing is everything for you. And that's the freedom we have in that. That's the beauty of what God has done. I'll end with this. Uh, this last summer, Kate and I were kind of hanging out some in Chapel Hill. And before school started back for the semester, we went to the Carolina Basketball Museum. And, I mean, we didn't grow up in Carolina. We didn't grow up as Carolina fans. So we're kind of working on that and, like, trying to live that experience some. And really, like, drinking pretty deeply of it and enjoying it. So, like, we went, and as soon as we walked through the doors, like, we were blown away. Like, the videos, the trophy cases, the stories about Phil Ford and Roy Williams, like, Truly great basketball has come from the school, and it was awesome. But, you know, as a child of the late 80s, early 90s, like, who did I go to see, like, that I really wanted to see the most, right? His airness, that's right, Michael Jordan. <laughs> and we went, and, like, it was, like, beeline to the Michael Jordan case. And 
you just read what that guy did, and your jaw drops, right? Like, Wooden Award, Player of the Year, 82 National Championship. He leaves UNC. He goes on to get Most Valuable Player, like, five times. Ten All-NBA First Team designations. Nine All-Defensive First Team honors. Like, ten scoring titles, three steals titles, I'm reading now. Six NBA Finals and MVP awards. I mean, he holds the career-high record for most regular season scoring and also most playoff scoring. In 1999, ESPN named him the greatest athlete to ever come out of North America. An entire continent. <laughs> All the athletes. Michael Jordan is the best. Like, that's incredible. He's been inducted in the Basketball Hall of Fame twice. For real. I mean, once for his own individual career, and then a second time the next year for being on the Dream Team. Like, you can't beat this guy. Shooting, driving the basket, stealing, offense, defense, like awards, accolades, honors. The guy can do anything. He did everything. You can't talk him. Christian, in the same way, Christ does everything for his people. He has prayed for you. He has worked for you. He has cried for you. He stands before God as your priest. And he says, this is your son. This is your daughter. They are here because I've died for them. And they're not going anywhere. They can't go anywhere. You'd be unjust to move them from your presence. He stands before us as our prophet. And he tells us what we receive through his good work. That you get all of God's joy. All of his love. All of his welcome. And he rules us as our king. And he guides us in how to use our freedom. And he conquers our enemies of sin and death and injustice in the world. And he gives us all the benefits of his kingdom. Jesus does everything. He even saves us out of our legalism and our hypocrisy into his freedom. And if you are a Christian, that is yours. And that is free, and it is rich, and it's yours. So rest in that. And take it and marinate it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that he loves us like he's loved us. Thank you that in him we are whole and we are free. God, that you give us everything in him. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And to him we can go with all of our troubles, all of our worry, all of our sin, all of our joy all the good things about us, that we can work for Him and know that we won't be destroyed by that work. Lord, that we can live regular, normal, ho-hum lives and know that our life means something. God, thank You for everything You give us in Him. God, I pray that You would open our eyes more and more to that, that we would love people out of that, that we would love You out of that, that we would even love ourselves out of Your work. In your son's name I pray. Amen.